0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Apologetics Part 4, Teleological Arguments for God's Existence. If someone asked you, why do you believe in God? How would you answer? Sadly, most of us would flounder around maybe talking about the Bible or secondhand miracles and never really be able to give a solid answer that a skeptic would be able to sink his teeth into. However, it turns out that philosophers have long identified three classic approaches to reasoning about God's existence. ontological, cosmological, and teleological arguments. And I realize those words probably don't mean much to you right now, but by the time we get through this lecture, you will understand what they mean. In this lecture, you will learn several versions of the teleological argument. That's the idea of evidence for intelligent design, so that you can reason from the complexity of creation to the existence of the Creator. If you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. Here now is Apologetics Part 4, Arguments for God. The first time I acquired any kind of systematic understanding of this was in a philosophy of science class I took at uh, when I was studying to become an engineer at one point in my life. It was really cool because here I am in basically an atheist institution. And my professor is teaching me the three main philosophical arguments for God's existence. I'm like, sweet, I got myself a good teacher here. He did. He went through and he, he addressed these different arguments and proved God's existence. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy, what is he, like a closet Christian? Like hiding out here behind enemy lines or what? But um, I, always, I don't even remember the guy's name, but I always appreciated you know, his courage to do that in that class, in that context among those people. Here are the three main kinds of arguments for God's existence. You have the ontological argument for God's existence that's based on reason alone. So that's basically looking at God's uh, existence um, by itself, not necessarily looking at the universe to prove his existence, but considering the question of his existence by itself. Um, And uh, so you you just need reason for that. You don't need anything, anything else. Then you have the cosmological argument which is um, based on causality and that's the one you were doing, right? Kalam Cosmological. So uh, that's the idea that you trace back a chain of cause and effect to the beginning cause. And then the third kind of argument for God's existence is based on order and design. Now there are many arguments. I'm going to go through like eight or so with you, but they can all be broken into one of these three main categories, whether the ontological, the cosmological, or teleological. Most of our arguments for God's existence are teleological, which we also would call like intelligent design arguments. Um, so... T- I say teleological. I think teleological would be just fine too. <laughs> so teleological is something that's relating to design or purpose. It's related to the Greek word telos, which is the word meaning the end of something, which can mean the physical end of something, or its purpose. Hence, telephone is like sounds that make it to the end of a wire. Or television, telescope, there's lots of telewords, you know? But it's always telos word of the end, or purpose, or design of something. So teleological is dealing with purpose and design. I gotta get in my notes to where I'm supposed to be here. There we go. I don't want to just wing it. The standard teleological argument goes as follows. One, the universe evidences order and design. Two, a design requires a designer, three, a designer of the universe exists. So the first two statements there are premises, and the third is the conclusion that follows from those premises. It's, it's a very common sense argument. You know, I'm kind of systematizing it and giving you the official way of talking about it. But it's just as simple as this. How do I know that a painter exists of, of this right here? I have the painting. It, is, is this even a painting? Yeah, it is a painting. So if, if, if there is a painting, well, this is a picture of a painting, but originally there was a painting, right? If there is a painting, that's proof that there's a painter. Simple, right? If there's a building, there must be one or more builders out there who existed at some point if there's a building at this point, right? It's a completely logical way of approaching things. What about a tree? What's more complicated, that painting or a tree? The tree. Trees can reproduce, trees can provide shade, trees can produce oxygen you know what's that grow Grow, right Um, trees can turn into paper and we could write on them I mean trees are magnificently complex I mean you could stab a tree with a knife and it would like I hit a tree with my car one time and then I went back like the next year to observe how the tree was doing and I couldn't find which tree it was there was like a you know like five trees there I'm like which one was it because it just kind of sapped over itself and healed, and my car didn't really make that much of a dent. It sure did total my car, though. (laughs) Uh, So trees are pretty awesome. And yet, when we look at a tree, because of the way our culture is and it's so secular, we don't say to ourselves, a tree maker exists. But yet a tree is more complicated than a painting or this this room we're sitting in. And we know that there was some designer who said, all right, we're going to put the lights right here. We're going to put the ceiling. Panels there. We're gonna put this kind of carpet. We're gonna pick this color. You know, there were designers involved, right? Yeah. In the
1: chapter I read, there was an argument that said if you were like two guys walking in the woods and they saw this giant round ball that was out of nowhere, they'd never seen it before. And he's like, uh, theist and atheist. Theist asks atheist, Do you think this just came out of nowhere? And the atheist would be like, Of course not. Someone made it. And it happens a couple more times. He's like, What about the universe? A giant round ball that no one's ever seen before think it just came out of nowhere. He's like, no, it's always been
0: here. <laughs> Here's a little video that I thought was pretty funny. The old, the it's called The Atheist's Worst Nightmare. Now
2: if you study a well-made banana, you'll find on the far side there are three ridges. On the close side, two ridges. If you get your hand ready to grip a banana, you'll find on the far side there are three grooves, on the close side, two grooves. The banana and the hand are perfectly made one for the other. You'll find the maker of the banana, Almighty God, has made it with a non-slip surface. It has outward indicators of inward contents. Green, too early, yellow, just right, black, too late. Now, if you go to the top of the banana, you'll find, as with the soda can makers, they placed a the tab at the top. So God has placed a tab at the top. When you pull the tab, the contents don't squirt on your face. You'll find the wrapper, which is biodegradable, has perforations. Notice how gracefully it sits over the human hand. Notice it has a point at the top for ease of entry. It's just the right shape for the human mouth. It's chewy, easy to digest. And it's even curved toward the face to make the whole process so much easier. Seriously, Kirk, the whole creation testifies to the genius of God's creative knowledge.
0: Okay, so. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a teleological argument. You're looking at something, you're saying, look, the banana sure seems designed. It sure seems like somebody put thought into that. I mean, if you look at, you know, a can, can I get your, or here's one right here, a Coke can, we're in Atlanta. It's more true to our context. What are some design features that the banana has that this Coke can doesn't have? The non-slip surface, like as soon as this gets wet, it's just like, you can easily drop it. If you drop it, you have to wait a while before you open it, right? Because otherwise it'll spray all over the place. This stuff will kill you if you drink too much of it. Whereas the banana is like, actually good for you. And it can help with cramps if you're, if you're running or exercising and, and your legs are cramping up. You eat a banana and you're like, oh, yeah, let's go. You know. So I mean, it's just like, but nobody would ever say this just magically appeared, right? Obviously, somebody designed this. And yet a banana is better designed than the Coke can. There's an inference to a designer there, right? All right, so I have two scriptures that relate to this. One is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, and the other is Psalm 19, 1 through 4. I'll show you that again in just a second. But you definitely want to write these down uh, because, like I said to you before, anytime I do find scriptures that are relevant, I definitely want to bring them up because this class doesn't actually involve the Bible much, and I'm a big fan of the Bible. So, Dan, could you read this for us?
3: being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Right.
0: So since the, I guess the, you know, the, the idea that there is something evident of, about God, but especially this here, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, attributes are clearly seen through what has been made. I mean, people can look at the universe and they should make the inference to a God who made the universe. That's what Romans one is basically making the case. Paul's making the case that like people basically know that God exists just by looking at creation itself. Psalm 19, one through four is this beautiful, poetic way of saying a very similar thing. Talon. The heavens are tell-
1: telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the
0: end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Do you know who, uh, what branch of science has the highest concentration of theists, people that believe in God? It's the people that study the stars. People that study the grandeur of the cosmos you know, the, uh, the heavens are telling the glory of God. I mean it is just so impressive when you study the universe and how it works and if you take something as simple as like gravity or the electromagnetic force or nuclear forces like the strong or weak nuclear forces you know any one of those four forces you study you're like wow this thing is just so amazingly designed and if you if you go far enough with physics that you get to start studying relativity theory and what Einstein started to discover in the early 20th century, it'll just blow your mind how the universe works and how it's put together, let alone quantum theory and how tiny little things work at a microscopic scale. Like it's really hard not to say this thing is amazingly put together, but no, we can't say that. We can't say that because we know it just came from nowhere right? That's kind of where we're at with that. There are some advantages to the teleological argument that other arguments don't have. One of the advantages is that it's very easy to prove because it's It You know, uh, you can talk about a banana or a painting. It, that's, those are things that are in people's experience. They know about. You don't necessarily have to jump to talk about the gravitational constant like Talon did, which we appreciate that Talon did that. Uh, I'm going to come back to that later. but. The teleological argument is right in people's experience and the argument uses well-established scientific facts to prove the existence of God. Uh, The teleological argument tends to be very science heavy. If you're not a science person, you're not going to enjoy this lecture. The next one you'll probably like though, okay? It's more philosophical than scientific. If you are drawn to science or you're talking to somebody that's a science person, teleological argument is probably where you want to spend your time. And uh, true science, I believe, will always lead to God. Uh, After all, science is a study of the creation. And thus, it's indirectly a study of the creator. Um, And so I'm not anti-science at all. Uh, My first degree was a bachelor's in science. So I love science. I think science is cool. And science is really studying creation. So how can it not help but um, extol and lift up God one of the things that I want to make a distinction between is operational science and historical science. And this is a distinction made in the Answers book put out by the Answers and Genesis people. And I think they make a really good point here. Because when you look at operational science, that's the kind of science that does experiments on things to figure out what is the case and what is not the case. And that's the kind of science that ends up uh, giving us uh, advances in medicine and discovery of DNA and transportation and communication advances that we have. But then you have historical science. And you see there, there's a guy who's just sort of like holding his thumb up to a bunch of bones and imagining what they actually look like if they had spots and you know, how they attacked each other. And it's just, I don't know, I just want to make a distinction between these two realms of science. One, I, I consider legitimate science, where they are actually testing things, coming up with hypotheses, and figuring out if those are false or not. And the other one is just like telling stories to fill in the details. And I feel like uh, when it's story time, we're not doing science anymore, honestly. And that's a lot of what ends up happening, sadly, in our time. Do you kind of mean going
1: back and like finding gaps in what they think happened evolution?
0: Yeah, I think they're both gonna, going to have the same degree. They're both going to wear the white coat. They're both going to be called scientists. But one's doing actual science, and the other one is just guessing at what he thinks might have happened. And I don't consider that science. I, I consider that guessing what might have happened. It's history. It's not like it's an illegitimate enterprise, but I don't think it deserves the, the label of science, even if we complicate it with all sorts of technical jargon that doesn't make it science either. That just makes it complicated with technical jargon, which you can do to Dr. Seuss books if you want. You know, it doesn't make it science either. All right, so I want to talk to you about the watchmaker argument. This is the most classic form of the teleological argument, pioneered by a guy named William Paley a few hundred years ago. And this is what William Paley said. Jesse.
2: In crossing a heath, Suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and were asked how the stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it lay there forever, nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground and it should be inquired how, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be there in that place. I should hardly think of the answer, which I had before given, that for anything I knew the watch might have always been there.
0: All right, so if you see a rock, you might be tempted to say, this rock's just always been here. But if you see a watch on the ground, nobody's going to say this watch has always been there. Right? Why? What's the difference between a rock and a watch? Watches Watches are more complex. Okay. What else? What were you going to say? A rock is part of nature. All right, next slide here.
2: The watch must have had a maker that there must have existed at some time and some place or other an artificer or artificers. That's somebody that who, makes something. <laughs> who formed it from the purpose which we find it. Actually to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use? Every indication of contrivance, every manifestation of design which existed in the watch exists in the works of nature with the difference on the side of nature of being greater or more and that in a degree which exceeds all computation.
0: When you see the watch, you immediately make a design inference. In other words, you immediately say somebody made this, this object. You don't make that inference though when you see trees or plants or dogs, right? You just say, oh, dogs—they just came from other dogs, and they came from other dogs, and maybe they came from a banana way back. What? You know, so like, why is it that when we see something complicated like a watch, we make a design inference, but we see something way more complicated like a dog, we're just like, ah, pff, just I don't know. Somehow it got here. You know, it's it's a double standard. And so what William Paley's saying is. In nature, the living things that are around us are more complex than something as simple as a watch. And so they should themselves point us to a maker. I'm going to give you the example of the hummingbird, okay? And so what I want to do in the rest of this lecture is cruise through four arguments for God's existence. The first, they're all teleological, okay? The first is the hummingbird. I want to just describe the hummingbird to you. And I think once I describe it to you, you're going to be like, this thing is awesome. There's no way it just sort of like popped into existence. You know, it had to have been designed. And then I want to use a cell, just just a normal living cell, okay? And that's number two. Number three is DNA. And then number four is fine tuning, which Talon had already described a little bit. So I'm just gonna review some of the things he said. Each of these is an argument for God based on design or some sort of teleological reasoning. So the hummingbird, right? Jacob, could you read for us? This is from a book called In Six Days by John F. Ashton.
3: For controlled, heavier than air flight, there are four fundamental requirements. A correct wing shape to give a lower air pressure on the upper surface, a large enough wing area to support the weight, some means of propulsion or gliding in extra surfaces, or a means of altering the main surfaces in order change direction and speed. Flight occurs in many branches of the living world. Birds, insects, flies, bees, wasps, butterflies, moths, mammals, bats, reptiles, the extinct A <laughs> each each class of creature is anatomically different with uh, no connection even by the most part of the evolution. A bird's wings are made of feathers. A feather is a marvel of lightweight engineering. Though light, it is very wind resistant. This is because there is a clever system of bars and barbules. Each barb of a feather is visible to the naked eye, and comes off the main stem. What is not generally realized is that on either side of the barb are further tiny barbules, which can only be seen under a the microscope. These are of different types depending on whether they are coming from one side of the barb or the other. On one side of the barb, rigid barbules <coughs> will emerge while the other side, while on the other side the bar rules will have hooks. Thus the hooks going out of the barb will connect with the ridges reaching in the opposite direction from a neighboring barb. The hooks and ridges act like velcro, but go on one stage, but go one stage further since the ridges allow slide and And there is, thus, an ingenious mechanism for keeping the surface flexible and
0: yet intact. Have you ever thought about a feather before? Mm -hmm. Have you ever noticed that when you hold a feather, you can go one way and it's okay? And if you go the other way, it frays all apart. And then it's hard to put it back together again, right? Um, And the thing about feathers is that, like you said, they're very light. You know, like if you drop a feather, it just sort of floats down, right? But it's very wind resistant, which makes it so helpful for a bird to use a bunch of them to form a wing that can then flap and cause significant air resistance so that they could fly. Um, it's, it's a very uh, well-designed system. Let's keep going here, uh, Josiah. That is not all. Even if one
1: has a feather, the uh, delicate lattice structure would soon become great. The last also an oil to lubricate the sliding joints <coughs> by the hooked and ridged barbules. rules. Most of us realize that once the barbs of the feather have been separated, it is difficult to make them come back together. The feather becomes easily frayed in the absence of oil, which, is a, bird's, which a bird provides from its uh, preening land at the base of its spine. Some of this oil is put on its beak and spread throughout the feathers which for a water bird also gets waterproofing of the surface. Thus water slides off the dust or the duck's back. Without the oil and feathers are, without the oil, feathers are useless. So even if a supposed land dwelling dinosaur got as far as wafting a wing, it would be no use after a few hours. As one might expect, however, the story does not end with end there either a bird can fly only because it is also an extraordinary exceedingly light bone structure, uh-huh. which is achieved by the bones being hollow. Many birds maintain skeleton strength by cross members within the hollow bones, such as the arrangement began to be used in the middle of the century for aircraft wings, and it is termed with Warren's truss arrangement.
0: Large birds, such as an eagle or vulture, would simply break in pieces in midair if there were some supposed halfway stage in their skeletal development where they had not yet developed such cross members in their bones. Uh, so, we, look, we looked at the feather, pretty impressively designed, right? The feather has these barbs that come off of it, right? And in between it, it has barbules. One side is a ridge, the other side is a hook and somehow these things connect to each other but allow motion and then those are oiled from the preening gland of, gland of the bird. In addition to that, bird's skeletal structure is highly specialized for flight. Your bones are very heavy. That's probably why it's hard to, when uh, humans were first starting to make attempts at flight, they would just strap on these like huge wings and flap around And like, probably a bunch of people died that way, I don't know, but we're heavy and birds are not heavy because they have these hollow bones. It's another part of the structure. So we've described the oil required, we've described the feather, we've described the bones, but there's still more. They breathe differently. Have you ever stuck your head out the window when you're driving really fast? Or somebody else is driving really fast and it's hard to breathe? The air is like pushing on your face, right? So what if you're a bird, and you're flying at like 50 miles an hour. You just like stop breathing or birds are small. They don't have big, huge diaphragms like we do. They push all this air up, right? So they breathe differently than us. The respiratory system of a bird enables oxygen to be fed straight into air sacs, which are connected directly to the heart, lungs, and stomach bypassing the normal mammalian requirement to breathe out carbon dioxide first before the next intake of oxygen. Human beings breathe about 12 times a minute unless they're in apologetics and it's like 15 times a minute because they're so excited. Whereas small birds can breathe up to about 250 times a minute. Thus, there's a perfect system for the high metabolic rate of birds which use up energy very quickly. In fast forward flight particularly, birds could not sustain exhaling exhaling against the oncoming airstream. Note also that birds are warm-blooded which presents a vast biological hurdle for those who maintain a reptile ancestry for birds. All right, so now now we talked about breathing a little bit. They have this highly adapted method of breathing that is completely different than what we have. Now we have to talk about the wing flapping motion. This requires a bird to have strong wing muscles with a forward-facing elbow joint to enable the foreshortening of the wing used much in the upward stroke of most species and in the dive birds of prey. So you have to have good wing muscles to do that. And the versatility of the swivel joint at the base of the wing, coupled with the elbow joint on the wing itself, and the smooth feather structure overlaying all leads to great flexibility and aerodynamics of the wing. Lift and drag can be balanced with instant movements, which in aircraft still require comparatively cumbersome changes of flap and ailerons. Um, And then he talks about, well, what about so you have to have you know wing muscles? And he's like, Yeah, but. What about the tail? You need a tail or else you're just like flying all over the place, right? So you need a tail with its own way to control flight and its own muscles, right? And then you have to plug all this stuff into the onboard computer called the brain of the bird so that it controls it properly, right? And we still haven't even touched the actual hummingbird. All right, let me just skip ahead to that part. One of the most delightful demonstrations of all these principles coming together involves the hummingbird. These small birds have the ability to beat their wings at up to 80 beats per second. 1,001, 80 beats. 1,002, 160. 80 beats per second. That's some serious wing muscles, right? And as well-known, can hover, fly backwards, forwards, and sideways with ease. Speeds of 50 miles an hour are commonplace for these flying marvels. Fuel must be replenished very quickly because of the great turnover in energy. Consequently, the bird must feed on a food which can be broken down quickly into energy. What's that? Sugar. Oh, yeah. All this is achieved by feeding on the nectar of flowers, which requires the ability to hover and a thin, long beak to get into the flower. The bird also has a special tongue with two furrows, enabling the nectar to be stored on it. The long tongue goes in and out of the bill at an unbelievable rate of 13 times per second. Imagine that, you like, stick your tongue out and, and in 13 times, yeah, in one second. I think Jesse got like three times in a second there. He was cruising too. When retracted, it is curled up at the back of the head. One can envisage the odd scenario of the supposedly half evolved hummingbird, either with the ability to hover and a sparrow beak unable to feed, or the long beak but no ability to hover, which would mean flying into the flower with no ability to stop. <laughs> all the requirements must be there to begin with. In order to have flight, you have to have all this stuff. In order to have a hummingbird level of just like, elegant flight, where I mean, come on, hovering? That's awesome, right? They can hover, they can be, they can be just like chilling and then just like shoop, go sideways a little bit, right? Or they can go backwards a little bit. It's incredible what they're able to do. 50 miles an hour. You go 50 miles an hour without a car. I'd like to see you try. Give me a bag of sugar. Even with a bag of sugar. <laughs> the extreme maneuverability of the hummingbirds is due to their having the ability to swivel the, ring, the wing through a much greater angle than other birds. And so they create a power stroke up and down. It is not scientific to argue on the one hand for the obvious design of a Boeing 747, And then rule design out of court when considering the far more versatile flight of an eagle, falcon, or the remarkable hummingbird. That's the design inference. We're saying, look, hummingbirds are better designed for flying than, you know, human designed aircraft. Because human designed aircraft struggle to do any number of these small maneuvers, fine tuned maneuvers that the hummingbird can do. Like, we've just figured out how to make little drones that can hover. If you see a a drone like hovering around out on the porch there, nobody's like, I wonder if a skateboard and a remote control car somehow got together and randomly produced this object without any intelligence behind it. Nobody says that. They're like, wow, what are they designing next? Right? Isn't that what we say? So when you see design, it bespeaks or it points to a designer. Uh, So that's... Argument number one is the hummingbird. Argument number two is cell complexity. And so I want you to consider a human cell. Here's a picture of a human cell. Formerly, this is Howard Perth in his book Blind Faith. Formerly it was thought that a cell was composed of a nucleus and a few other parts in a sea of cytoplasms with large spaces in the cell unoccupied. Now it is known that a cell literally swarms, that it is packed, Full of important functioning units necessary to the life of the cell and the body containing it. The theory of evolution assumes life developed from a simple cell, but science today demonstrates there's no such thing as a simple cell. Even the simplest organism known to man, just like the basic bacterium, still has this incredibly complex set of organelles within it that are doing all kinds of different things from generating energy to metabolizing to copying DNA and RNA and letting stuff in and out of the cell. I mean the cell there is no such thing as a simple cell. And you know, I know if, if this is back in like the 1800s and you're Charles Darwin you're like, yeah, the cells are probably like simple things and you like look at it like under a a magnifying glass, you're like, "Oh yeah, they do look kind of simple." Well, I'm sorry, but that world is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. The world that we now know Is a world of incredible complexity at a microscopic level. It's not a simple world, it's a complex world. And that's not even touching, really, the whole issue of DNA, which is incredibly complex by itself. I think when we look at even a a simple cell, we have to say, here's a good Carl Sagan quote, a living, who's not a Christian, by the way, a living cell is a marvel of detailed and complex architecture. Seen through a microscope, there is an appearance of almost frantic activity. On a deeper level, it is known that molecules are being synthesized at an enormous rate. Almost any enzyme catalyzes the synthesis of more than 100 other molecules per second. In 10 minutes, a sizable fraction of the total mass of a metabolizing bacterial cell has been synthesized. The information content of a simple cell has been estimated at 10 to the 12th bits, comparable to about 100 million pages of the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's one simple, cell we're not talking about a brain cell we're not talking about a whole bunch of cells working together as an organ to pump your blood day and night without rest for years we're not talking about the incredible capacity of your eyes to perceive depth and color and all the other things that your complicated brain system processes we're talking about a simple cell and it's that complicated so i think You see something that complicated, you see something that is so apparently well put together, you should infer a designer. In other words, someone of significant enough intelligence to figure it out. But here's the rub. Every one or everything that is intelligent that we know of in the natural world is made of cells. What stuff is not made of cells? What water is not made of cells? Rocks are not made of cells? But everything that's living, that we know of in the natural world is made of cells. So who made the cell? You need someone to make the first cell, right? And so obviously I'm arguing that God exists on the basis of that. All right, moving on to argument number three, which is a DNA argument. I have some handouts for you right here. This is a DNA argument. It's based not on complexity of how DNA actually functions, but it's based on How DNA stores information is something that's totally different than what I just talked about and I love this little comic once again from the answers book on one hand you have a scientist who is working at SETI search for extraterrestrial intelligence right and he's saying any day now we'll pick up a tiny coded signal and then we'll know for certain that there's intelligence out there because coded information does not arise by chance right as soon as we get a coded signal we know there's intelligence out there and then here's the biologist the pricely coded information in each cell would fill many books, but we know for certain that no intelligence created life." So there's an obvious inconsistency there between those two approaches in different fields. I'm just going to breeze through this. If you are interested in it, read Perry Marshall's spiel. That's only part of it. His whole thing is actually longer than that. but. I'm not here to stress you out. This guy, Perry Marshall, is an information specialist. He is somebody who works with networking and computers and information. What he argues is that DNA is an encoding, decoding system. In other words, it's a code. DNA is a language. It has letters, it has syntax, it has intent, and it represents something other than itself. And that's always the requirement for something to be an actual code or a language, is that it represents something other than itself, like a map. A map points to a reality beyond itself, right? And so, so it is with language. This ink is not universe, right? Universe is a word we use to describe everything that exists in the natural world, right? And so that's the way language works. It points to something beyond itself. In other words, it has meaning. So DNA has an alphabet, it has syntax. Combinations of the four letters do different things. They cause different things to happen, right? You can take a DNA sequence and you can copy it. You can store it on a computer. You can print it out, right? So that's a characteristic of information. Information is not matter. Information is not energy. It's something that can be stored in matter or stored using energy, right? But it is, it is itself something else other than matter or energy. It's information. If DNA is a code, if DNA is a language, all examples of languages always come from a mind. But how do you get a mind to design DNA if every mind we know is the result of DNA? Right? Every mind we know, whether animal or human, is generated from cells that run on DNA. So how do you get DNA in the first place? You still need it to come from a mind because it is a language. Languages do not arise on their own. What arises on their own is, uh, is noise, chaos, not language, right? Let's say, for example, you went outside and you saw, I don't know, a bunch of leaves on the ground, arranged, spelling out the word hello. Who in the world would ever say they randomly fell that way? No, you're going to say somebody painstakingly put these leaves and arranged them so that they would spell out hello. That's obvious. You don't even have to think about that. You automatically make the design inference because you know you see language and nature doesn't generate language by itself, right? It has to come from a mind. And so that's basically Perry Marshall's argument in a nutshell is that DNA is a language, language comes from a mind, there are no languages that do not come from a mind, therefore DNA is evidence that a mind exists prior to DNA, i.e. God exists. And so the whole argument for, the information argument for DNA, hinges on that language comes from a mind. All right, on to the last of my four arguments for this part. I wanna just reiterate some fine tuning stuff here. The force due to gravity is equivalent to the gravitational constant between the mass of object A and the mass of object B divided by the square of their radius. It's an equation that represents how much force you're going to feel between two objects, right? If object A is the Earth and object B is you, right, how much gravity are you going to feel? Well, the closer you are to the center of the Earth, which would be R in this case, the more gravity you're going to feel. The farther away from the Earth you are, the less gravity you're going to feel. But this letter here, G, is always the same. Doesn't matter if we're talking about two planets in outer space, or if we're talking about this pen and this pin cap, which do have gravitational attraction to each other. It's just so small that I can't feel it, right? Because their masses are so small. So it's just not much. But the Earth's mass is so huge that it does generate a lot more gravity, right? So anyhow, this G right here is what we call a constant, and there are lots of constants, as Talon shared with us. And this happens to be 6.67 times 10 to the negative 11 Newton meters squared over kilogram squared, whatever. I mean, it's, it's a number. That's the point. It's a number. And that number is the same for anywhere in the universe. And if that number changes, then we start floating off the Earth. Or we get squished down into the Earth, right? And uh, planets start colliding with the sun rather than going around the sun or they're not held in orbit well enough and so they float off into outer space and they lose the heat that the sun provides. Right? And so that's just one little example of a constant. There are other major constants for governing electromagnetic forces and uh, nuclear forces within molecules. right? And so there are all these different constants. There are lots of them. There are dozens of them. And it's like somebody set each one of those dials in the beginning to be exactly what it needs to be such that we could have life in our universe. And if one of those dials is off just a little bit, life can't exist, all right? And so it's like somebody fixed the numbers underlying the physical equations in the universe. It's like somebody set it up so that we would be able to be here. And this argument is well expressed by Roger Penrose, who says, the chances of all these constants being exactly what they need to be to support life are one in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power, okay? One in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power. That is such a big number. Let me, uh, this is Roger Penrose's words. This is an extraordinary figure. One could not possibly even write the number down. (laughs) It would be one followed by 10 to the 123rd successive zeros. Even if we were to write a zero on each separate proton and each separate neutron in the entire universe, and we could throw in all the other particles for good measure, we should fall far short of even writing down the figure needed. That's the chances that the universe would pop into existence with all of these dials all these constants exactly the way they currently are. And these are things that don't change. These are things that are not determined by the equations. These are things that are constant no matter what equation or what scenario we're dealing with. So in mathematics, if if you come up to something that has a probability of 1 in 10 to the 50th, they call that probability zero. This is so much smaller chance to to happen than that, and yet it's common for people to say, oh, I think the universe just sort of popped into being. Right, don't a lot of people believe that? Let me put it another way. It's more likely that a tornado would pass through a junkyard and assemble a working 747 than that the universe would pop into existence. Far more likely that that would happen. And nobody would ever imagine a tornado actually assembling a working plane if it passed through a junkyard, right? <laughs> Who would want to base their life on that kind of improbability? So I think the fine-tuning argument is actually one of the, it's one of the strongest arguments we have, which is why Bill Craig always uses it in his debates, not just him, but like any, anybody's argument for God's existence. And it's so science-heavy that it's like so cool that it's on our side. Because it's so awkward. I mean, just imagine there's no God and the universe did. You're trying to like figure out, like, well, how did it pop into existence? You're like, well, it's kind of awkward that it's like so perfectly fine-tuned for human life. Uh, but for us, it's actually a great um, evidence for it. So let's go ahead and take a quiz. And if you want to read the Perry Marshall thing, read it. I'm not assigning it, okay? Hold on to it. Maybe down the line, you'll be talking to somebody who's studying biology and they're talking about DNA. And you're like, I learned somewhere that DNA is information and it's a language and therefore God exists. And I don't remember the in-between steps. He explains all the in-between steps so that it's easy to understand. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.